Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. All right, we're very lucky to be speaking with a classmate of mine uh, from Notre Dame, uh, way, way back when, uh, Notre Dame Law School, Lori Murphy from uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, although I look at the... Uh, the Wikipedia it says it has, there's 200,000 people in Grand Rapids. Um, I'm told that it's about 750,000 to, to a million people, and we've got an all-star here. We've, you know, uh, Lori is probably one of the most humble people that I know, but here she's chairman of estate planning, private client services, probate, guardianship law, and wills and trusts disputes practice. All of that's a big handful. I try to run a law firm here with the people I am, but that's pretty big. So welcome, Lori Murphy. What a pleasure to see you. It's great. Well, good. So listen, I know we're right in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 virus thing. And um, I was going through people I wanted to interview. And um, I was going through people I graduated with or are new. And I was I I looked at your name and I looked at all the stuff that you're doing and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. I looked at these two. I here just for the camera. There's these huge uh, presentations: coronavirus response team, uh, estate planning action items. What can you do? How can I help you? I mean, how did you do all that stuff in short? I mean, short time. You know, you just you do what you need to get done and. It's important for us to be reaching out because people have questions and people are feeling isolated. Anything we can do to try to help them find ways to make good use of their time as they're stuck at home and prevent despair, that's what we want to do. That's great. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing, Lori. Where'd you grow up? I am the oldest of nine children from Saginaw, Michigan. How far is Saginaw from Grand Rapids? About two and a half hours. So my dad was a teacher. He taught special education, two to six-year-olds with multiple severe disabilities. My mom was an art teacher and eventually taught adult special ed um, when she wasn't raising nine children. So that is a huge impact on me. I'm still very close to my family. There's seven girls and two boys. So the girls rule the roost and I rule the girls. And my dad is still living. He's still over in Saginaw. My dad is blind and has been blind his whole life. Went to the school for the blind in Michigan. Um, and that's been pretty influential in how I approach the world as well. And uh, now he still lives by himself in Saginaw with a seeing eye dog. And we have uh, frequent contact with him. Luckily, with nine kids, we can all take turns talking to him, mostly listening to him. He likes to talk. Good Irish man. That's great. So then, so you're one of nine. You're the oldest of nine. Now the oldest, boy, that is quite uh, a crushing type of responsibility to be that first one. 
Yeah, my, my sister, there's, I have a sister one year younger than I am. So she and I have shared that responsibility, thankfully. Yeah, so tell, tell us a little bit about your family. Did, they, did everybody stay in Michigan? I've got one brother in DC and everybody's back in Michigan. People have gone away from Michigan, but everybody's back in Michigan. Nobody else in Grand Rapids, mostly on the east side of the state, uh, Detroit, Midland, Jackson, Dexter, Lansing. Well, that's terrific. So, so then what was that like growing up with, with uh, eight siblings? Tell us a little about that. You know, it's, it's, you've got numerous children and you grew up in a large family yourself. It's a, a lot of chaos, a lot of contact, not a lot of privacy. Um, and every large family is different in our family. I think everybody just took pretty good care of each other. We were good to each other, generally, not that we didn't fight at times. Um, and I laugh when people worry about their messy houses because I don't think they know the meaning of a messy house. <laughs> My mom's uh, theory was that she was raising children, not lawn grass, and that the priority wasn't cleaning, it was caring. So oh, I think love that. I'm gonna use that with my messy house. Hey, Michelle, my wife, you don't have a messy house. I'm telling you that right now. my wife's Italian. She loves having the house clean. We have six kids and I, I'm the one that's the messy one. I, I'll just say that right now. But growing up with, you know, I'm one of 10 kids and growing up, my parents were both Irish. And I'm telling you that cleanliness was not the priority for Tom and Joanne Shannon. It just, it just wasn't. It was like uh, surviving, my dad was a social worker. Uh, I think he, he maxed out about 18 grand a year, and uh, my mom was uh, stayed at home with, with all of us in our craziness, and I have no idea how they did it. Um, the but uh, yeah, I agree with you that the the lack of privacy. I, I think so. But there's a different thing that goes into that, isn't there? There's like a you learn to share at an early age. You learn to fight really hard, and you learn to grab what's yours and all that stuff. I get all that, but there's a certain type of I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me there's a certain level of understanding about even almost living in a big city when you're one of nine or 10 kids. Yeah, you, you learn that, yeah, you learn to fight and make up and fight and make up and fight and make up. You learn resiliency of relationships. Yeah, I, I think that's good. Yeah, so um, boy, that is a, a great story. Both of your parents, special ed teachers, uh, and then how about your grandparents? Did, were, were they from Michigan too? Both so, my, they, so my mother's parents were from the Detroit area and then moved to Bay City. They were journalists for the Detroit Free Press. Oh, wow. And, and then how about your other side? And uh, I, my, my dad's parents, is, his, uh, Saginaw's a factory town, a GM town. So his dad worked at GM, his mom worked at GM. His, mom, his dad worked as a factory worker his dad was uh, an, or his, his mom was an administrative assistant to one of the GM execs hmm. and nice. so yeah do they did they all were were they all first generation uh, out here or were they are or, or have the Murphys no or? no we've been around for a long time yeah Americans oh, a long time huh so have my, you done that ancestry thing where you find out where everybody's from and all that stuff Lori we have my my grandmother. Um, my her family actually came from Canada, 
And so I'm named after both grandmas. So my grandma Murphy was Lorette Rose, and it's Lorette, L-A-U-R-E-T-T-E, which is a French Canadian spelling. Oh, yeah. And my, nice. my other grandma was Pauline Catherine, so I'm Loretta Catherine. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you for taking us down memory lane there on that. I, I, I still can't get that out of my, my sight uh, or mind uh, growing up. I, now, this is the, I want to say this year, May 18th, is going to be the 50th anniversary of when Mount St. Helens blew. And I was living in Yakima, Washington at the time, which was, I want to say, 90 miles from the mountain. And I remember my being at home with that, and that's going to be a big thing for me to remember that, because this kind of reminds me, this COVID-19 kind of reminds me, because our, our life came to a standstill in Yakima, Washington. It was dark. We had, there was like a couple inches of ash all over the place, and every, nobody wanted to go outside because they thought it was maybe radiation or something like that. We eventually worked our way through it and um, worked, worked our way where we would actually go outside and then we learned uh, two or three years down the road that the ash actually helped to fertilize the crops, et cetera, and get more minerals, I, I guess, whatever. But as, as people, getting used to something like this COVID thing, it's going to be very interesting how we, we move forward. What do you see as far as the, the legal environment for your practice going forward? What do you think is going to, going to be happening in, the, in the, the months and years to come? So a couple different things. One is people our age, very young, obviously, yes. uh, don't think about the possibility of getting sick and dying. And nobody really wants to think about that. But now as we're seeing young people, people, people of all ages, you know, having to get sick and some of them passing away, you know, what people are becoming more worried about their estate plan, getting their estate plan up to date is something that's a little more meaningful than it was when I think, oh, this is going to be in effect when I'm 99 years old. I'm never really going to die. I'm never really going to have a situation where I have to make end of life decisions. That's something for old people. So I think people are going to be much more focused on updating their estate planning. I think that um, we're going to see just technology changes, personal contact changes. Um, the economy is going to take a hit for a while. So I think that people are going to be very, um, we're just going to be trying to be more efficient. We're trying, going to be trying to be more willing to not meet with people face-to-face, -face, find ways to do things that are more remote. And I think that's going to be a permanent change. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think this type of interaction that you and I are having, whoever, uh, I mean, change is happening big time. And it's, it's, it's got to be embraced by everybody, um, especially lawyers, you know, and how we interact with our clients and whoever can make this a, a better intimate understanding of how to, how to talk to each other through this medium is going to benefit. But I, I do see that there's going to be less, I mean, obviously the handshake deal is over. <laughs> you agree with me on that? The handshake, the actual handshake, it'll be a wave deal. It'll be a wave, <laughs> exactly. But um, no, and I, I think, yeah, I, I do think that people think more about mortality and disability in this type of thing because it's really come, I mean, every day we're, we're hit with numbers on how many people got this virus, how many people have died and worldwide. I mean, that's the first stat I see in the Wall Street Journal every day is that. And I'm like, it's, it's 
profoundly just intimidating. So, um, you know, how, how do you as a person um, cope with this type of, uh, you know, as a professional, how do you cope with, with how, how have you been coping over the last 40 some days since this uh, stay at home type thing has happened? You know, in my practice has been still very, very busy. So in some ways it feels like I haven't even had the time to cope, to think about it. So my ways of coping have been more to try to reach out to people that I think are having a harder time maybe than I am. So, you know, people who have been laid off, some of our staff folks, um, even our staff who are working remotely that aren't used to doing that. Some of our clients that are worried about their loved ones that are literally stranded in a nursing home without being able to have visitors. My coping has more been trying to reach out to other people because I tend to be more of a social person. So my coping has been working, trying to do as much as I can, trying to do the best I can, and then trying to encourage people to be gentle with themselves as they try to cope. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. I, I, I really do think um, that, uh, that thinking about others first is a huge uh, mechanism to, to cope with this because, you know, obviously, um, you, you and I, uh, we're, we've got uh, a business, uh, a law firm that's been deemed essential. We're working hard at the time. And the folks that don't have that, that number one, that they're not essential workers or they're stay at home, but they've been laid off or their businesses closed, restaurants, et cetera. The empathy that we must have as a, as a profession, but also just as people, has got to be overwhelming about what we can do to help them. And um, that's why I really liked um, the, the, the different um, uh, presentations that you've made. Where can people go to, to find uh, this great work that you've done um, on the response? Lori. So our Miller Johnson is the law firm where I work. They've got a, a website, millerjohnson.com, just Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And on there, there's a tab for coronavirus response. So in Michigan, lawyers are not essential. Oh. Technically. So we are, um, we are working, frankly, overtime on essential work that has to be done to support our clients. But technically, we're not essential. We're not supposed to be out and about. So we've been doing all of this stuff remotely. But we represent mostly smaller and closely held businesses. We don't represent a lot of giant businesses. We represent more individuals. And so our group really stepped up immediately on the employment side to talk about what are these rules? How do they work? How do you get the loans? How do you pay back the loans? What are the pitfalls? So if you go on our website, millerjohnson.com, there's just outstanding information, both nationally and locally, statewide. And I, I mean, I spent a good hour when I prepped for this interview and I read it and it's some of the best stuff that I've read. I mean, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I read, you know, uh, lawyer stuff all the time. And, and I gotta tell you, Lori, you guys have actually killed it with this. I mean, uh, the great stuff about the charitable deductions, the great stuff about the PPP, the great stuff about all the different things that, that folks and businesses can do in this time. And then I'm, now you tell me you're doing another one. 
in my spare time, right? Okay, so when is, when is that one going to be? That one's going to be uh, estate planning issues for caregivers of older people because oh. those are the people most directly affected. And so it's going to revisit some of the themes from the first one, which is just estate planning items that you can do now. Um, but it's even more urgent for older people. And then I'm going to talk about, um, you know, what if your loved one is in a nursing home, goes into the hospital, and then now wants to go back to the nursing home they've lived in for the last five years. Can they go back? If they do go back, can you see them again? If you can't see them again, what are your alternatives? Um, if their stock portfolio has substantially dropped and now you can't pay for their care where they were, how are you going to pay for that? Uh, how do you deal with Medicaid? How does the $1,200 stimulus payment affect people who are on governmental benefits? So that's going to be the focus of Friday. You know what? This is so great that you're doing this that because it, you're giving these presentations to not only you know people in your private client services, but you're giving it to people that are getting a $1,200 payment or folks that, that have people in nursing homes. And this is great stuff. And so um, it, and if they just go on MillerJohnson.com, they, they'll be able to access it? Absolutely. And they can access even the really high end. Um, we've got literally nationally known labor lawyers, uh, business lawyers, that all that information is free. We've got forms. We've got really outstanding information. No, oh, that's terrific. Yeah. I, I, and so, yeah, you know, I think we talked about it, you know, Mr. Rogers said that, uh, you know, when he watched scary things, he, you know, his mom would say, look for the helpers. And I'm looking at a helper right now in Lori and I, and your firm and, and these terrific young lawyers that are working on this with you. Um, Raj Mal Malvia, and uh, we'll give a shout out to these guys because uh, they're helping out too. Uh, John McFarland did a good job helping you, right? They're outstanding lawyers. We've got a great team. That's what, so you have about 100 lawyers at Miller Johnson, right? Right. So in our department, there's about nine. So in our estate planning, private client, elder law group, there's about nine of us. So tell me about your journey with this firm. So a um, long time ago, we got out of law school. How many firms have you worked for? Just one. This is the <laughs> place I've been for a very long time. And, and so. Um, how uh, how big was the firm when you joined it and how big is it now? It's about, it's been a, a, a moderately growing firm. It was probably 40 or 50 when I joined and it's probably about 100-ish now. Yeah, yeah. So we and just, then, we've got two offices, one in Grand Rapids, one in Kalamazoo. And you pretty much know everybody? You know, it's funny. I We have actually hired people since this mess started that I have literally never met. Yeah. So... I know, I certainly know the people that were hired before this mess started, but I wish I knew everybody better. So I do know most everybody in the firm though. Yeah. Maybe you could tell us some, um, some habits that, that, that you use. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I like to do these um, podcasts is for, um, I know we're both young, but for younger lawyers that are you know aspiring there's a, there's a couple of the, the folks that produce this um are entering law school this year yeah Sid, Sidney Bettino and Asti Zurich who I um I'm, uh, 
I've got, I'm going to do one with them just to, just to figure out what their viewpoint is on what they see as the future as they enter into law school. But I think, you know, people want to know what, what very successful people do, how they do it, how, how they, they go from point A to point B where, you know, you have the ability to affect a lot of people by your great presentations and you have a certain empathy that obviously you were raised with, um, with by your parents, your great parents and your grandparents. And, and then, um, but what are some habits that you have that help you be effective? You know, they're not so much habits as just ways of approaching the world. I think that most of what we do is based on relationships. And so building relationships, maintaining relationships, caring about relationships, that has been really important to my practice. And at a time like this, when things are very difficult, reconnecting with those relationships, kind of like what you're doing, I think is a habit that people really need to, to remember and prioritize. So it's easy for people in leadership to prioritize production. But when this is all over and better and resolved, people aren't going to remember whether they made, you know, X dollars or X plus one. They're going to remember who was nice to them, who was understanding to them, who showed compassion to them, who they had relationships with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I think sometimes, you know, there, there's a certain, um, you know, habit of, of lawyers in our profession and in certain businesses to make folks into commodities rather than into, you know, actual people that, and so I, I agree with you. They, um, and then also transactions, you know, make something into a transaction rather than a relationship. It's one thing with our firm is, is that we don't take that many cases, but when we do, we basically tell them we want to be their lawyer for the rest of their life and help them through the hurdles that they're going to become. Because a lot of times we're representing people that are disabled. And so we're dipping into that pool with them. And it's not like when the case is over, we can just run away. It's, you know, and for you, exactly. I mean, you're dealing with people's estates and, um, and so you're in for the long term with them. I, I've interviewed uh, folks that do what you do, uh, trust law and, and elder law. And although some people may think that it's kind of a, I don't know, a milder profession, et cetera, I'm like very interested in this. I, I can't tell you, I, I um, you know, my wife and I, you know, we, we um, created a trust for for, for us. And I, I had no idea before we did it, how horrible it is just to have a will in place. And we let other people decide, other courts decide these things. I mean, you, you attack this all the time, but how important is it for somebody to have, do the planning and do trust, that type of thing? If, as you said, if you want to have say and control over what happens when you can't make the decision or you can't direct it, it's just essential because otherwise it just falls to state defaults or it falls to people that you might not have chosen to be your decision maker. And these are your, this is your legacy. These are your children. This is your life savings. This is everything you've done with your entire life. People want to control that. And then, but when it comes to the actual exercise of that control with wills and trusts and that sort of thing, they shy away because they don't really want to think about a world where they might not be in control, either because of incapacity or death. Yeah, and and tell tell us how simple it is to, for example, 
I'm I'm sitting at home in Michigan, and I am I've got a business, and I'm sitting there, and I've got a will in place that you know I got from one of those I don't know those molt, those Zoom services or whatever the heck it is legal Zoom or whatever it is, and then I sit sitting there and I'm and I'm watching this. How hard is it for them to once they call you? to get everything fixed and put into a trust and, and then powers of attorney and medical powers of attorney, all that stuff. How, how, how hard is that? And again, there's an emotional hardness to it that you can't discount that just confronting that conversation is difficult. Kind of the logistics of it are not hard. So the logistics of it typically would be to figure out what you own. So what do I have in my retirement plans, my life insurance, my, personal property, my bank accounts, my investment accounts. What do I have that's joint with my mom? You know, what about those e-bonds and grandma's underwear drawer? What are all the things that I own? So kind of consolidating all your information in one place. And then typically somebody from my team or I would meet with them now by Zoom and go through, well, what is it that you want to accomplish? Who do you want to benefit? Who do you want to take care of these things if you can't do it? Then we prepare drafts for people to take a look at. Usually we have another conversation where they kind of say, oh, well, you know, once I saw it in writing, it wasn't quite what I had in mind. And then we fine tune it and get everything signed. And then the, the part that people often neglect is now that it's signed, you've actually got to transfer things into the trust, coordinate your life insurance, coordinate your retirement plans, um, talk to your loved ones about what your wishes are document your digital life so that people can actually find things. So right. think of it as sort of a three-step process. Right. And then, I mean, after you, after you, uh, they execute the documents, they still have that relationship with your firm, right? I mean, they, they, you guys will do a check with them and make sure that everything's going to be okay. We do. Although again, people don't want to think about this. And so typically, you know, we do people's plans and except for higher net worth people who have adjustments very frequently every year or so, you know, people who don't have significant corporate assets or things like that, they tend to put it in a drawer and revisit it about every five to seven years. And when they look at it, they pull it out at a time like this and say, oh my gosh, I didn't want my sister Mary in charge. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, so I read somewhere and it it may be wrong, is that 50% of us at some point in our life, and it could be when we're older, will be disabled at some I mean, point. 50%, but it is a large percentage. I mean, think about that. So if I'm going to be disabled, either a court's going to decide it or my documents are going to decide it, right? So that's exactly right. And if you, so again, there's nine kids in my family and in my family, we get along, but you know, let's say that my dad hadn't chosen who should be in charge. My brother, who bless his heart, is a great guy, but not necessarily who you want in charge of your finances, has equal priority to take care of my dad's finances with all the rest of us. Right, right. So then, so it's good for for them to choose. I mean, and and for us to choose and to make sure that we we're ready for that situation. And so that's where I, I think this is fascinating. How you know you can. I mean, listen, you create a legacy in your life, and you know whether it's a small, you know, starting a business or all, every, all your savings, etc. How are you going to use that legacy? Do you want to 
do you want to control that or do you want some judge somewhere to control it? That, that's what it comes down to basically, right? There's a lot of tax barriers. There's a lot of tax trip ups that people can run into that they don't even realize just regular middle class people, um, like with the like retirement what? plans. Give, so, give us a few, give us a few that are kind of glaring. So your retirement plan is the most glaring. So typically, uh, married people will name each other as beneficiary of the retirement plans, which is exactly the right thing to do because your spouse can roll over your retirement plan to a new IRA and not have to take out required distributions. Um, but what if you name your estate as beneficiary of your IRA? Well, you've got to pay all the taxes in five years. You've just taken away a huge tax deferral opportunity. So that's one example. Uh, another example is in the Medicaid world where Again, in these difficult times, somebody goes to, you know, their parents and say, you know, our business is going bankrupt. Can you give us $100,000? Mom and dad say, well, of course, honey, we love you. Here's $100,000. And a year later, the parents need nursing home care. And Medicaid says, well, that $100,000 you gave away, you should have used for your nursing home care. And now you're going to be denied Medicaid for the next five years. Ouch. How can, how can you help somebody with that? Well, it's a complicated question, but there are ways. Well, good. Well, that's great. So um, could you give us a few anecdotes about cases that, in your, that, that were important or defining moments in your career? I, I, you know, I know that you know, we're, there's confidentiality involved, et cetera, but situations that, that you've gone through uh, that have been kind of defining moments in your, your career. I, I know I put you on the spot here, Lori. Let's see. Um, an example of kind of a defining moment. Um, again, I, some of what I do is for clients with large companies, typically closely held companies. And for those people, if they don't do proper planning, the IRS gets 40 cents on the dollar and could require the liquidation of their business to pay their taxes. Ooh. So if that was a family-owned business that they had planned to pass on to their family, and now they've got to find a way to pay, you know, $30 million in taxes, that's going to really make it difficult for their business to continue. So kind of defining moments, I have a client who has a business that's worth probably $40, 50000000 million, who knows today, um, and he really feels strongly that he wants that to go to his children, but his children are young. They're not in a position yet to take over the business. So we, we did a, a complicated strategy where that business now, most of it resides in a trust where he still controls the business. But in the event of his death, that business is not going to be subject to estate tax. It's just going to be, it's going to pass to his kids outside the estate tax system. So he no longer has to worry that his kids might not be able to have the business because they would lose it to taxes. I love that. I, I so love that's, that. That's, that's elegant. That's very elegant, Lori. So that's one example. Um, another example, kind of defining moment. Um, I recently dealt with a case where um, the Parents had two children. One of the children was an alcoholic and was exploiting the parents. And we were forced to go to court to, to put an end to his exploitation so that he didn't take all the parents' money so that it could be used to pay for their care. And so um, the ability to 
try to treat him with respect because he, you know, to some extent was doing this because he had drug and alcohol issues, but then also to protect the parents while not completely discontinuing his relationship with him, with that son. You know, that was a very, very difficult disputed case, but I think a really important case. Um, and then last but not least, I've got a case right now where um, I have an elderly client who feels very strongly. He was diagnosed with uh, cognitive impairment several years ago. And some, based on planning that we did, he was extremely explicit with his family. He's not very old, actually, now that I think about it. Um, he's in his 60s, but he, was, he had early onset Alzheimer's. He's made it crystal, crystal clear to his family that if his cognition goes down further and something else goes wrong, he does not want extraordinary means or any means used to prolong his life. Mm -hmm. And so we're reaching that point and the family has a lot of peace of mind of saying they don't want him resuscitated, they don't want any treatment, they don't want him to go to the hospital, they want comfort care only. But it was only because he was extremely explicit and his documents are extremely explicit that a young guy like him could say, mm, I, that's not care that I want. I want to reject it. And that's going to be legally enforceable. Well, that's, that's, uh, those, those are really important things because, you know, again, the legacy issue. But so maybe you could give a couple examples during this whole, uh, you know, U.S. Congress has been kind of, uh, reacting pretty heavily to this COVID thing. I mean, trillions of dollars. One of the things that, that I found fascinating in, in the, the presentations you made was some getting rid of, uh, trying to, or strike that, trying to encourage people uh, to be more charitable. Is there anything like, talk to me like I'm a two-year-old because I'm not very good at the, the tax code stuff. Um, what's some of the things that, that, uh, that, that they've done to help people, encourage people to give um, uh, charity to, to different groups? So one thing is, um, and this is not brand new, but you can give money if you're over 70 and a half, you can give up to $100,000 directly from your IRA, directly to charity. And you don't Get a, you don't get a 1099R on it, you don't pay any tax on that, you don't get a deduction because you didn't have to recognize the income, but that's money that wouldn't have been worth, so if I give away $100, it wouldn't have been worth $100 to me because I would have had to pay tax on it. If I give it to a charity, they get to keep $100. That's so big. That's, that's called a qualified charitable distribution. So that's one way that the tax code's really encouraging it. Second way is, um, in general, there are limits on how much of your adjusted gross income you can give to charity. So the idea is that I can't, if I'm Bill Gates, I can't give away $100 billion and take a deduction for $100 billion when I have $100 billion of income. And so now I pay no taxes on my $100 billion. And you can see where they're coming from on that. Well, sure. this year, you can do that. So this year, if I have $100 billion of income, I can give away $100 billion and take a $100 billion deduction. Or, so, yeah, this is pretty big. That's a, that's a huge thing, isn't it? Well, where it matters a lot is people's income is a lot lower this year. So if I can only give a percentage of my income and my income is down and I'm pretty generous, I don't want to be capped on what I can give or what I can take a deduction for giving because my income is so low this year. So. Right. 
there's lists on the caps of what you can do. So that's another good thing. And then just for normal, regular people, um, there's a above the line deduction now where you can deduct up to $300 of charitable giving as an above the line deduction. That's kind of a tax word, but the idea is it actually reduces your taxes to give that money away. So that was a change in the CARES Act. And there may be some others, but those are the those are some key tax motivated reasons that you might want to give. But people don't give for tax deductions. You know, people really should think about if they've got money in donor advised funds and private foundations, you know, if they've just got money in their checkbook, for heaven's sake, do what you can right this minute. Charities desperately need it. Well, and, and you know, you're in Michigan, I'm in Illinois, and this is absolutely crushing small business, crushing people in the restaurant industry, the you know, movie theaters, all these different groups. And, um, you know, one of the things that <clears throat> we're trying to do is do more takeout and all that kind of stuff. But that is just a drop in the bucket compared to what they, and, and, and listen, going forward, I don't understand how some of these restaurants are going to stay in business when the margins aren't that big and people are going to sit, you know, far apart, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I think we're really going to have to kick in as a country, you know, sure. We're, we're, we're all um, competitors and all that kind of stuff, but boy, I tell you, start the person next door and then work your way out because <clears throat> this is going to be a real hard row for a number of years. Don't you, don't you think? I think so. And the people who are the poorest and least able to, to deal with this are the ones who are already suffering the most. And so that's where your charitable giving could just make a big difference. Yeah. And, and what, are some of the, what are some of the charities that you're encouraging people to give to in uh, your area? So in our area, you know, a couple ideas and every municipality is going to have a similar thing. Our community foundation actually has a COVID relief fund which is focused on needs of first responders, um, homeless, you know, really basic needs, food, shelter, medical care. Those are really the biggest needs right now. So the charities we're focusing on are, there's a group called Kids Food Basket, which is providing meals to kids who aren't in school, so don't have as much access to school provided lunches and breakfasts. Um, our homeless shelters are really, trying hard to take care of things. Um, it's really those basic needs. I'm very involved in um, disability advocates is a group that tries to help people with disabilities. A lot of those people are having food instability, shelter instability, um, and then older people, charities benefiting older people because again, their life savings, they don't have a chance to recover. You know, it's yeah. assuming they're gonna recover. They're not gonna have that chance to recover. You know, a lot of those older people are really in a pinch. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was thinking about that, you know, the stock market just got crushed, you know, going from almost 30,000 uh, Dow down to 18. And then I know we're back a little bit, but who knows what's going to happen. And some of these folks that maybe didn't have the proper diversification. I mean, I tell you, man, it's, it's gonna be tough. You know, so you, so you mentioned to me that your father is uh, still alive and well and, and mine is too. I just, just to kind of give you my 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 dad is 98 lives with my sister and gets regular visits in Seattle from everybody and you know we we talk to him hopefully you know we talk by zoom and all these different mediums um, but uh, 
I tell you, it's, it's so nice to have, uh, to be from a large family. I think you're, you feel that way too. We, we pretty much all get along too, I guess, uh, which is lucky. Yeah. Very thankful. Yeah. Very thankful. But, um, yeah, reaching out to, I mean, and I, I tell you, I've got a real soft spot for folks that like my sister, Mary Jo, who takes care of my dad, you know, cause it's really hard every day, you know, involved in that. But, does, does, um, so if we can reach out to the, the older folks, um, I know that it's really scary, like to be in a nursing home right now uh, with this this virus. And um, so I, yeah, I think there's, there's gonna be a lot more that we're gonna have to do. Yep, so anything that you can do to help caregivers, they're at the end of their rope. Caregivers for children, caregivers for old people. Yeah, I, I was at a, gro I, you know, I go to the grocery store every now and then and these, these frontline workers, I, I mean, they are stressed out. I mean, they're, they're not making a killing there and they're, you know, exposed to the public and, you know, all of us are coming in there and they don't know what we got and what we don't have. And so, I don't know, it's, to me, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a more imperative now than ever to become a leader, to be a person that is, you know, that has an optimism, that is giving back. And so I'm really glad we have people like you, Lori, that are stepping forward, giving these presentations. Go to millerjohnson.com, everybody. Look at all of this great stuff. It's, it's tough to take some of the, the, the not knowing what's going on. Uh, and go to Lori's uh, great presentations and take a look at it. I mean, again, piles and piles. There's more piles coming. So jump on it and um, give, give Lori a call. Just Google Miller Johnson, Lori Murphy, Loretta Murphy is how is it? And Lorette, I like the Lorette part from, uh, from France, that's good. Uh, and then, you know, get to know her. Um, you know, one of the things that with lawyers that I, that I like to do when I interview them is kind of get the back story on them. And one person that you want to hire is somebody that you trust. Look at this person. Would you not trust her? Come on. <laughs> so Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Any final words? Be nice, be kind, be good to yourself, be gentle with yourself and everybody else. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you being on and hopefully we'll we'll talk to you again soon and get an update from you. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.